Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host here this evening for the Gist of Freedom. And tonight we're continuing our reading of the book by William Stale, The Underground Railroad. And part of the discussion tonight will be reference to the liberation of Jane Johnson uh, in 1855. Miss Johnson was created by abolitionist William Stale and Passmore Williams, amongst other Underground Railroad activists, in seeking her freedom from her southern owner. And here, and joining us. Uh, to discuss Black Wonders. Terry Jackson, in addition to William Katz and Adrian Hextall. Are you there, gentlemen? Yes, this is uh, Doctor. This is Doctor Terry Jackson. Okay, Mr. Jackson, are you on a uh, uh, cell phone or? Yes, I am. On a Bluetooth? Um, yes, I am. Okay. Uh, I was having a little difficulty hearing you. Um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? A little better. Is that better? Yes, that's better. Much better. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay. Uh, give our listeners a little background there, Professor. Well, uh, Dr. Terry Jackson, um, my my expertise is in history and business because, as we know, um, all conquest, even slavery, was about economics. Uh, and so my passion lies with uh, history and how it ties together and how we can move forward um, as a people uh, taking by taking a look at our history. Okay. And um, Adrian Hextall, are you there? Adrian has not joined us yet. As yet, Mr. Uh, William Katz, are you aboard? And Mr. Katz has not apparently joined us as yet, but hopefully will be in um, as we continue. Uh, are you familiar with the book? Is is, the, is that question for me? Yes. Okay, yeah, I've made myself very familiar with the book over the last um, couple of days, more specifically with the uh, uh, couple of chapters dealing with uh, Jane Johnson and her situation in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, but outside of that, um, I haven't personally read all of it. Okay. And 
our producer wanted us to remind you that we are looking for panel members for the film screening of the Contradictions of Fair Hope. And uh, maybe you might be interested in participating in that affair. Yeah, I, I would definitely be interested in that. Okay. Well, I'll certainly uh, make our producer aware of that. And uh, I know that uh, you're a professor. Could you tell us where? Well, uh, I have a doctorate degree, but again, as my passion is business, uh, my thought process is not necessarily to, to teach, but to help um, create businesses so that we can provide, I guess, a self-sufficiency for ourselves. I'm more of a guardian, if you will. So what I what I do for, for a profession, I am a, a consultant. I go into organizations, large organizations, and I deal with organizational change. I deal with also process improvement. And one of my movements that I have going on is Grandma's Nations. Grandma's Nation is a is the growing of fruits and vegetables so that we can be we can sell those organic fruits and vegetables into our our neighborhoods. We then turn around and we help people build businesses, meaning African American people build businesses, working toward self sufficiency. We then begin to look at how we can educate our own people. Uh, and so my movement is one of creating systems, systems of healthcare, commerce, banking, education, manufacturing, and farming, so that we won't have to ask anyone for a job, but we can create our own jobs. I see. I want to remind our listeners that they can hear uh, the archive shows at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. And uh, are there any highlights you think our listeners should be uh, on the lookout for? Well, as it relates to um, the piece that that, that, that um, I actually read and very very intrigued by, it was uh, Jane Johnson. You know, it's chapters uh, twenty and twenty one of of the book, and her traveling to Pennsylvania with her her slave master, uh, the Wheeler family, and in doing so, she was savvy enough to know that um, in Pennsylvania that once you traveled as a slave, you could actually ask for your freedom. And it was obvious that he wasn't aware that she had that knowledge and she was savvy enough in order to uh, pass a note that uh, ultimately made it to uh, Mr. Williams still and his uh, white counterpart, Passmore Williamson. And from that, of course, a court case ensued simply because you know, she asked for her freedom, and they and and Wheeler was trying to say that she was abducted. So, uh, I would just like to say that her savviness, and um, as many of us are, are very savvy, was I guess uh, underestimated by her slave master at the time. Okay, uh, for our audience, William Still was a leading abolitionist in the 1840s and 50s. Um, was a big time operator of the Underground Railroad in the Philadelphia, Maryland area. Um, would you, um, uh, Professor or Dr. Jackson, uh, would you please introduce the clip? Okay, well, uh, audience, we're going to listen to uh, two chapters of, of the book, chapters 20 and 21, uh, that deal basically with uh, Jane uh, Johnson, who, as I mentioned earlier, she had traveled uh, to uh, Philadelphia 
or Pennsylvania with her slave master, whose name was John Wheeler. Uh, at the time, Wheeler was also, a, if I'm not mistaken, a U.S. diplomat, uh, and he was traveling with his family. Uh, at the time, he didn't know that Jane Johnson had any idea that in Pennsylvania she could ask for her freedom. And from that point forward, uh, you know, she basically made history in 1855 by asking for her freedom, and a court case ensued. Uh, we can now play that clip. You can get a chance to listen to it, and then after that, we will have a discussion. Thank you. Trial of the Emancipators of Colonel J. H. Wheeler's Slaves, Jane Johnson and Her Two Little Boys, Part 1. Among other duties devolving from the Vigilance Committee when hearing of slaves brought into the state by their owners, was immediately to inform such persons that they were not fugitives, but were brought into the state by their masters. They were entitled to their freedom without another moment's service, and that they could have the assistance of the committee and the advice of counsel without charge, by simply availing themselves of these proffered favours. Many slaveholders fully understood the law in this particular, and were also equally posted with regard to the vigilance of abolitionists. Consequently, they avoided bringing slaves beyond Mason and Dixon's line in travelling north. But some slaveholders were not thus mindful of the laws, or were too arrogant to take heed, as may be seen in the case of Colonel John H. Wheeler of North Carolina, the United States Minister to Nicaragua. In passing through Philadelphia from Washington, one very warm July day in 1855, accompanied by three of his slaves, his high official equilibrium, as well as his assumed rights under the Constitution, received a terrible shock at the hands of the committee. Therefore, for the readers of these pages, and in order to completely illustrate the various phases of the work of the committee in the days of slavery, this case, selected from many others, is a fitting one. However, for more than a brief recital of some of the more prominent incidents, it will not be possible to find room in this volume. And indeed, the necessity of so doing is precluded by the fact that Mr. Williamson, in justice to himself and the cause of freedom, with great pains and singular ability, gathered the most important facts bearing on his memorable trial and imprisonment and published them in a neat volume for historical reference. In order to bring fully before the reader the beginning of this interesting and exciting case, it seems only necessary to publish the subjoined letter, written by one of the actors in the drama, and addressed to the New York Tribune, and an additional paragraph, which may be requisite, to throw light on a special point which Judge Kane decided was concealed in the obstinate breast of Passmore Williamson, as said Williamson persistently refused before the said judge's court to own that he had a knowledge of the mystery in question. After which, a brief glance at some of the more important points of the case must suffice. Letter copied from the New York Tribune. Correspondence of the New York Tribune. Philadelphia, Monday, July 30th, 1855. As the public have not been made acquainted with the facts and particulars respecting the agency of Mr. Passmore Williamson and others, in relation to the slave case now agitating the city, and especially as the poor slave mother and her two sons have been so grossly misrepresented, I deem it my duty to lay the facts before you, 
for publication or otherwise, as you may think proper. On Wednesday afternoon, week, at four and a half o'clock, the following note was placed in my hands by a colored boy whom I had never before seen, to my recollection. Mr. Still, sir, will you come down to Bloodgood's Hotel as soon as possible? As there are three fugitive slaves here, and they want liberty, their master is here with them, on his way to New York. The note was without date, and the signature so indistinctly written as not to be understood by me, having evidently been penned in a moment of haste. Without delay, I ran with the note to Mr. P. Williamson's office, 7th and Arch, found him at his desk and gave it to him, and after reading it, he remarked that he could not go down, as he had to go to Harrisburg that night on business. But he advised me to go, and to get the names of the slaveholder and the slaves, in order to telegraph to New York to have them arrested there, as no time remained to procure a writ of habeas corpus here. I could not have been two minutes in Mr. W.'s office before starting in haste for the wharf. To my surprise, however, when I reached the wharf where I found Mr. W., his mind having undergone a sudden change, he was soon on the spot. I saw three or four coloured persons in the hall at Bloodgood's, none of whom I recognised except the boy who brought me the note. Before having time to make inquiry, someone said they had gone on board the boat. Get their description, said Mr. W. I instantly inquired of one of the coloured persons for the desired description, and was told that she was a tall, dark woman with two little boys. Mr. W. and myself ran on board of the boat, looked among the passengers on the first deck, but saw them not. They are up on the second deck, an unknown voice uttered. In a second we were in their presence. We approached the anxious-looking slave mother with her two boys on her left hand. Close on her right sat an ill-favoured white man, having a cane in his hand, which I took to be a sword cane. As to its being a sword cane, however, I might have been mistaken. The first words to the mother were, Are you travelling? Yes, was the prompt answer. With whom? She nodded her head toward the ill-favoured man, signifying with him. Fidgeting on his seat, he said something, exactly what I do not now recollect. In reply, I remarked, do they belong to you, sir? Yes, they are in my charge, was his answer. Turning from him to the mother and her sons, in substance, and word for word, as near as I can remember, the following remarks were earnestly, though calmly addressed by the individuals who rejoiced to meet them on free soil, and who felt unmistakably assured that they were justified by the laws of Pennsylvania, as well as the law of God, in informing them of their rights. You are entitled to your freedom according to the laws of Pennsylvania, having been brought into the state by your owner. If you prefer freedom to slavery, as we suppose everybody does, you have the chance to accept it now. Act calmly. Don't be frightened by your master. You are as much entitled to your freedom as we are, or as he is. Be determined, and you need have no fears that you will be protected by the law. Judges have time and again decided cases in this city and state similar to yours in favour of freedom. Of course, if you want to remain a slave with your master, we cannot force you to leave. We only want to make you sensible of your rights. Remember, if you lose this chance, you may never get such another, etc. This advice to the woman was made in the hearing of a number of persons present, white and coloured 
and one elderly white gentleman of genteel address, who seemed to take much interest in what was going on, remarked that they would have the same chance for their freedom in New Jersey and New York as they had then, seeming to sympathize with the woman, etc. During the few moments in which the above remarks were made, the slaveholder frequently interrupted, said she understood all about the laws making her free, and her right to leave if she wanted to, but contended that she did not want to leave, that she was on a visit to New York to see her friends, afterward wished to return to her three children whom she had left in Virginia, from whom it would be hard to separate her. Furthermore, he diligently tried to constrain her to say that she did not want to be interfered with, that she wanted to go with him, that she was on a visit to New York, had children in the South, etc. But the woman's desire to be free was altogether too strong to allow her to make a single acknowledgement favourable to his wishes in the matter. On the contrary, she repeatedly said distinctly and firmly, I am not free, but I want my freedom, always wanted to be free, but he holds me. While the slaveholder claimed that she belonged to him, he said that she was free. Again he said that he was going to give her her freedom, etc. When his eyes would be off of hers, such eagerness as her looks expressed, indicative of her entreaty that we would not forsake her and her little ones in their weakness. It had never been my lot to witness before under any circumstances. The last bell tolled. The last moment for further delay passed. The arm of the woman being slightly touched, accompanied with the word, Come, she instantly arose. Go along, go along, said some who sympathized to the boys, at the same time taking hold of their arms. By this time the parties were fairly moving toward the stairway leading to the deck below. Instantly on their starting, the slaveholder rushed at the woman and her children to prevent their leaving and, if I am not mistaken, he simultaneously took hold of the woman and Mr. Williamson, which resistance on his part caused Mr. W. to take hold of him and set him aside quickly. The passengers were looking on all around, but none interfered in behalf of the slaveholder except one man, whom I took to be another slaveholder. He said harshly, "'Let them alone. They are his property.' The youngest boy, about seven years of age, too young to know what these things meant, cried, Master John! Master John! The elder boy, eleven years of age, took the matter more dispassionately, and the mother quite calmly. The mother and her sympathizers all moved down the stairs together, in the presence of quite a number of spectators on the first deck and on the wharf, all of whom, as far as I was able to discern, seemed to look upon the whole affair with the greatest indifference. The woman and children were assisted, but not forced, to leave. Nor were there any violence or threatenings, as I saw or heard. The only words that I heard from any one of an objectionable character were, Knock him down! Knock him down! But who uttered it, or who was meant, I knew not, nor have I since been informed. However, if it was uttered by a coloured man, I regret it, as there was not the slightest cause for such language, especially as the sympathies of the spectators and citizens seemed to justify the course pursued. While passing off of the wharf and down Delaware Avenue to Dock Street and up Dock to Front, where a carriage was procured, the slaveholder and one police officer were of the party, if no more. 
The youngest boy, on being put in the carriage, was told that he was a fool for crying so after Master John, who would sell him if he ever caught him. Not another whine was heard on the subject. The carriage drove downtown slowly, the horses being fatigued and the weather intensely hot. The inmates were put out on 10th Street, not at any house, after which they soon found hospitable friends and quietude. The excitement of the moment having passed by, the mother seemed very cheerful and rejoiced greatly that herself and boys had been, as she thought, so providentially delivered from the house of bondage. For the first time in her life she could look upon herself and children and feel free. Having felt the iron in her heart for the best half of her days, having been sold with her children on the auction block, having had one of her children sold far away from her, without hope of her seeing him again, she very naturally and wisely concluded to go to Canada, fearing if she remained in the city, as some assured her she could do with entire safety, that she might again find herself in the clutches of the tyrant from whom she had fled. A few items of what she related concerning the character of her master may be interesting to the reader. Within the last two years, he had sold all his slaves between thirty and forty in number, having purchased the present ones in that space of time. She said that before leaving Washington, coming on the cars, and at his father-in-law's in the city, a number of persons had told him that in bringing his slaves into Pennsylvania they would be free. When told at his father-in-law's, as she overheard it, that he could not have done a worse thing, etc., he replied that Jane would not leave him. As much, however, as he affected to have some implicit confidence in Jane, he scarcely allowed her to be out of his presence a moment while in this city. To use Jane's own language, he was on her heels every minute, fearing that someone might get to her ears the sweet music of freedom. By the way, Jane had it deep in her heart before leaving the South, and was bent on succeeding in New York, if disappointed in Philadelphia. At Bloodgoods, after having been belated and left by the two o'clock train while waiting for the five o'clock line, his appetite tempted her master to take a hasty dinner. So after placing Jane where he thought she would be pretty secure from evil communications from the coloured waiters, and after giving her a double counselling, he made his way to the table, remained but a little while, however, before leaving to look after Jane, finding her composed, looking over a banister near where he left her. He returned to the table again and finished his meal. But alas for the slaveholder, Jane had her top eye open, and in that brief space had appealed to the sympathies of a person whom she ventured to trust, saying, I and my children are slaves, and we want liberty. I am not certain, but suppose that person, in the goodness of his heart, was the cause of the note being sent to the anti-slavery office, and hence the result. As to her going on to New York to see her friends, and wishing to return to her three children in the South, and his going to free her, etc., Jane declared repeatedly and very positively that there was not a particle of truth in what her master said on these points. The truth is that she had not the slightest hope of freedom through any act of his. She had only left one boy in the South, who had been sold far away, where she scarcely ever heard from him, indeed never expected to see him any more. In appearance, Jane is tall and well-formed, high and large forehead of genteel manners, chestnut colour, and seems to possess naturally uncommon good sense, though of course she has never been allowed to read. 
thus i have given as truthful a report as i am capable of doing of jane and the circumstances connected with her deliverance w still p s of the five coloured porters who promptly appeared with warm hearts throbbing in sympathy with the mother and her children too much cannot be said in commendation in the present case they acted nobly whatever may be said of their general character of which i know nothing how human beings who have ever tasted oppression could have acted differently under the circumstances i cannot conceive end of section twenty the mystery alluded to which the above letter did not contain and which the court failed to make mr williamson reveal might have been truthfully explained in these words the carriage was procured at the wharf while colonel wheeler and mr williamson were debating the question relative to the action of the committee and at that instant jane and her two boys were invited into it and accompanied by the writer who procured it were driven down town and on tenth street below lombard the inmates were invited out of it and the said conductor paid the driver and discharged him for prudential reasons he took them to a temporary resting place where they could tarry until after dark then they were invited to his own residence where they were made welcome and in due time forwarded east now what disposition was made of them after they had left the wharf while williamson and wheeler were discussing matters as was clearly sworn to by passmore in his answer to the writ of habeas corpus he williamson did not know that evening before seeing the member of the committee with whom he acted in concert on the boat and who had entire charge of jane and her boys he left for harrisburg to fulfil business engagements the next morning his father thomas williamson brought the writ of habeas corpus which had been served at passmore's office after he left to the anti-slavery office in his calm manner he handed it to the writer at the same time remarking that passmore had gone to harrisburg and added that he had better attend to it the writ edward hopper esq was applied to with the writ and in the absence of mr williamson appeared before the court and stated that the writ had not been served as mr w was out of town etc after this statement the judge postponed further action until the next day in the meanwhile mr williamson returned and found the writ awaiting him and an agitated state of feeling throughout the city besides now it is very certain that he did not seek to know from those in the secret where jane johnson and her boys were taken after they left the wharf or as to what disposition had been made of them in any way except to ask simply are they safe and when told yes he smiled consequently he might have been examined for a week by the most skilful lawyer at the philadelphia bar but he could not have answered other than he did in making his return to the writ before judge kane namely that the persons named in the writ nor either of them are now nor was at the time of issuing of the writ or the original writ or at any other time in the custody power or possession of the respondent nor by him confined or restrained wherefore he cannot have the bodies etc thus while mr w was subjected to the severest trial of his devotion to freedom his noble bearing throughout won for him the admiration and sympathy of the friends of humanity and liberty throughout the entire land and in proof of his fidelity he most cheerfully submitted to imprisonment rather than desert his principles 
but the truth was not wanted in this instance by the enemies of freedom obedience to slavery was demanded to satisfy the south the opportunity seemed favorable for teaching abolitionists and negroes that they had no right to interfere with a chivalrous southern gentleman while passing through philadelphia with his slaves thus to make an effective blow all the pro-slavery elements of philadelphia were brought into action and matters looked for a time as though slavery in this instance would have everything its own way passmore was locked up in prison on the flimsy pretext of contempt of court and true bills were found against him and half a dozen colored men charging them with riot forcible abduction and assault and battery and there was no lack of hard swearing on the part of colonel wheeler and his pro-slavery sympathizers in substantiation of these grave charges but the pro-slaveryites had counted without their host passmore would not yield an inch but stood as firmly by his principles in prison as he did on the boat indeed it was soon evident that his resolute course was bringing floods of sympathy from the ablest and best minds throughout the north on the other hand the occasion was rapidly awakening thousands daily who had hitherto manifested little or no interest at all on the subject to the wrongs of the slave it was soon discovered by the chivalry that keeping mr williamson in prison would indirectly greatly aid the cause of freedom that every day he remained would make numerous converts to the cause of liberty that mr williamson was doing tenfold more in prison for the cause of universal liberty than he could possibly do while pursuing his ordinary vocation with regard to the colored men under bonds colonel wheeler and his satellites felt very confident that there was no room for them to escape they must have had reason so to think judging from the hard swearing they did before the committing magistrate consequently in the order of events while passmore was still in prison receiving visits from hosts of friends and letters of sympathy from all parts of the north william still william curtis james p braddock john ballard james martin and isaiah moore were brought into court for trial the first name on the list of the proceedings of the court was called up first against this individual it was pretty well understood by the friends of the slave that no lack of pains and false swearing could be resorted to on the part of wheeler and his witnesses to gain a verdict mr mckim and other noted abolitionists managing the defence were equally alive to the importance of overwhelming the enemy in this particular issue the honourable charles gibbons was engaged to defend william still and william s pierce esq and william b burney esq the other five coloured defendants in order to make the victory complete the anti-slavery friends deemed it of the highest importance to have jane johnson in court to face her master and under oath to sweep away his refuge of lies with regard to her being abducted and her unwillingness to leave her master etc so mr mckim and the friends very privately arranged to have jane johnson on hand at the opening of the defence mrs lucretia mott mrs mckim miss sarah Pugh, and mrs plumley volunteered to accompany this poor slave mother to the courthouse and to occupy seats by her side while she should face her master and boldly on oath contradict all his hard swearing a better subject for the occasion than jane could not have been desired she entered the courtroom veiled and of course was not known by the crowd 
as pains had been taken to keep the public in ignorance of the fact that she was to be brought on to bear witness so that at the conclusion of the second witness on the part of the defence jane johnson was called for in a shrill voice deliberately jane arose and answered in a ladylike manner to her name and was then the observed of all observers never before had such a scene been witnessed in philadelphia it was indescribable substantially her testimony on this occasion was in keeping with the subjoined affidavit which was as follows state of new york city and county of new york jane johnson being sworn makes oath and says my name is jane jane johnson i was the slave of mr wheeler of washington he bought me and my two children about two years ago of mr cornelius crew of richmond virginia my youngest child is between six and seven years old the other between ten and eleven i have one other child only and he is in richmond i have not seen him for about two years never expect to see him again mr wheeler brought me and my two children to philadelphia on the way to nicaragua to wait on his wife i didn't want to go without my two children and he consented to take them we came to philadelphia by the cars stopped at mr sully's mr wheeler's father-in-law a few moments then went to the steamboat for new york at two o'clock but were too late we went to the blood goods hotel mr wheeler went to dinner mr wheeler had told me in washington to have nothing to say to colored persons and if any of them spoke to me to say i was a free woman traveling with a minister we stayed at blood goods till five o'clock mr wheeler kept his eye on me all the time except when he was at dinner he left his dinner to come and see if i was safe and then went back again while he was at dinner i saw a colored woman and told her i was a slave woman that my master had told me not to speak to colored people and that if any of them spoke to me to say that i was free but i am not free but i want to be free she said poor thing i pity you after that i saw a colored man and said the same thing to him he said he would telegraph to new york and two men would meet me at nine o'clock and take me with them after that we went on board the boat mr wheeler sat beside me on the deck i saw a colored gentleman come on board he beckoned to me i nodded my head and could not go mr wheeler was beside me and i was afraid a white gentleman then came and said to mr wheeler i want to speak to your servant and tell her of her rights mr wheeler rose and said if you have anything to say say it to me she knows her rights the white gentleman asked me if i wanted to be free i said i do but i belong to this gentleman and i can't have it he replied yes you can come with us you are as free as your master if you want your freedom come now if you go back to washington you may never get it i rose to go mr wheeler spoke and said i will give you your freedom but he had never promised it before and i knew he would never give it to me the white gentleman held out his hand and i went toward him I was ready for the word before it was given me. I took my children by the hands, who both cried, for they were frightened, but both stopped when they got on shore. A colored man carried the little one. I led the other by the hand. We walked down the street till we got to a hack. Nobody forced me away, nobody pulled me, and nobody led me. I went away of my own free will. I always wished to be free, 
and meant to be free when I came north. I hardly expected it in Philadelphia, but I thought I should get free in New York. I have been comfortable and happy since I left Mr. Wheeler, and so are the children. I don't want to go back. I could have gone in Philadelphia if I had wanted to. I could go now, but I had rather die than go back. I wish to make this statement before a magistrate, because I understand that Mr. Williamson is in prison on my account, and I hope the truth may be of benefit to him. Jane, her ex-mark, Johnson. It might have been supposed that her honest and straightforward testimony would have been sufficient to cause even the most relentless slaveholder to abandon at once a pursuit so monstrous and utterly hopeless as Wheeler's was. But although he was sadly confused and put to shame, he hung on to the lost cause tenaciously, and his counsel, David Webster, Esquire, and the United States District Attorney, Van Dyke, completely imbued with the pro-slavery spirit, were equally as unyielding. And thus, with a zeal befitting the most worthy object imaginable, they laboured with untiring effort to convict the coloured men. By this policy, however, the counsel for the defence was doubly aroused. Mr. Gibbons, in the most eloquent and indignant strains, perfectly annihilated the distinguished Colonel John H. Wheeler, United States Minister Plenipotentiary, near the island of Nicaragua, taking special pains to ring the changes repeatedly on his long appellations. Mr. Gibbons appeared to be precisely in the right mood to make himself surpassingly forcible and eloquent on whatever point of law he chose to touch bearing on the case, or in whatever direction he chose to glance at the injustice and cruelty of the South. Most vividly did he draw the contrast between the states of Georgia and Pennsylvania with regard to the atrocious laws of Georgia. Scarcely less vivid is the impression after a lapse of sixteen years than when this eloquent speech was made. With the district attorney, William B. Mann, Esquire, and his honor, Judge Kelly, the defendants had no cause to complain. Throughout the entire proceedings, they had reason to feel that neither of these officials sympathized in the least with Wheeler or slavery. Indeed, the judge's charge and also in the district attorney's closing speech, the ring of freedom could be distinctly heard much more so than was agreeable to Wheeler and his pro-slavery sympathizers. The case of William Still ended in his acquittal. The other five colored men were taken up in order, and it is scarcely necessary to say that Messrs. Pierce and Burney did full justice to all concerned. Mr. Pierce especially was one of the oldest, ablest, and most faithful lawyers to the slave of the Philadelphia Bar. He never was known, it may safely be said, to hesitate in the darkest days of slavery, to give his time and talents to the fugitive, even in the most hopeless cases, and when, from the unpopularity of such a course, serious sacrifices would be likely to result. Consequently, he was but at home in this case, and most nobly did he defend his clients, with the same earnestness that a man would defend his fireside against the approach of burglars. At the conclusion of the trial, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty as to all the persons in the first count, charging them with riot. On the second count, charging them with assault and battery on Colonel Wheeler, Ballard and Curtis were found guilty, the rest not guilty. The guilty were given about a week in jail. Thus ended this act in the Wheeler drama. The following extract is taken from the correspondent of the New York Tribune, touching Jane Johnson's presence in the court, and will be interesting on that account. 
but it was a bold and perilous move on the part of her friends, and the deepest apprehensions were felt for a while for the result. The United States Marshal was there with his warrant and his extra force to execute it. The officers of the court and other state officers were there to protect the witness and vindicate the laws of the state. Van Dyke, the United States District Attorney, swore he would take her. The state officers swore he should not, and for a while it seemed that nothing could avert a bloody scene. It was expected that the conflict would take place at the door when she would leave the room, so that when she and her friends went out, and for some time after, the most intense suspense pervaded the courtroom. She was, however, allowed to enter the carriage that awaited her without disturbance. She was accompanied by Mr. McKim, secretary of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, Lucretia Mott, and George Corson, one of our most manly and intrepid police officers. The carriage was followed by another, filled with officers as a guard, and thus escorted she was taken back in safety to the house from which she had been brought. Her title to freedom under the laws of the state will hardly again be brought into question. Mr. Williamson was committed to prison by Judge Kane for contempt of court on the 27th day of July, 1855, and was released on the 3rd day of November the same year, having gained, in the estimation of the Friends of Freedom everywhere, a triumph and a fame which but few men in the great moral battle for freedom could claim. End of section 21
but it seems also that Mr. Wheeler was hedging his bets and that he gave Jane instructions that it not to talk to colored people, and if she did, she was to say that she was a free woman traveling with the minister. And, and, you know, again, that goes to the word that I used earlier when I I gave a a description of the clip, and that is her savviness. Even though he had coached her and given her this instruction, she knew exactly what her desire was for herself as well as for her family. And in so doing, I'm sure she listened well to that instruction. However, her passion was to be a free woman and for her sons to be free people in Pennsylvania. And so she was willing to, to take that chance of whatever it took in order to be a free woman. Mm-hmm. Now, and she had a total of three children, one of which the oldest had been sold uh, and was somewhere in Virginia. So those were the only three children that she had, right? Correct. And, uh, so I guess she saw no chance of her reuniting with the with the child that had been sold into slavery. So I guess she's very fortunate to have those two children with her. Uh, yes, and 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 it was it was interesting that she was able to convince Wheeler to let her take her two children on this particular trip. Because it, it appears to me, and maybe I'm reading into it, that initially that probably wasn't the case. So she had been thinking about this process, and somewhere through the grapevine, if you will, she had heard about going to Pennsylvania and becoming free. And as a result of that, she was able to convince him to take them with him on this particular trip. Yeah, it's uh, very strange uh slave owner, this Mr. Wheeler, Um, because if he wanted to be certain to keep her in bondage, he would have left those two children in Virginia, using those as a a hammer over her head to keep her in line. Yep, absolutely, I I agree, And, and, and as with most slave masters, you know, they had a tendency to want to go to the slave quarters to visit, you know, our our. The, this, the, the women slaves, and so this very well could have been a case that way for him to take her on a trip, because normally it was those that were quote unquote favored that went on trips with the slave master. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, kind of creeped into my thinking there a bit too that uh, that he had some ulterior motives along those lines. Uh, by taking her and willing to take the risk, yes, that he might not lose. only of yeah not only of going to Pennsylvania and taking the risk, but if I'm not mistaken, ultimately the final destination was going to be Nicaragua. Exactly, and they, yeah, and what was this? Do you know what the slave issues were in Nicaragua? At that time, I don't know. I, I don't have any knowledge of of uh, what the slave issues were in Nicaragua, but. Um, it, it, it's just it's very interesting that this whole scenario would, would create itself, you know, with the slave master uh, feeling comfortable enough, even though he was a U.S. diplomat. Um, you know, I'm assuming that being that he was a diplomat in Nicaragua, he probably had the same kind of feeling that if he owned her in the States, he could do the same there. Exactly. And, um, and before that, I guess they were going to stop in uh, New York City, and this is where Jane thought 
that she might ultimately receive her freedom. So I guess this, what was going on here in Philadelphia was somewhat of a surprise to her. Uh, yeah, it appeared that it appeared that it was a surprise, and, and the fact that she was able to to mention uh, to someone that she she wanted her freedom when she got to Philadelphia after she kind of heard it through the grapevine, uh, that kind of started this whole uh, scenario of going through the request for her freedom and then indicating that you know she was seeking her freedom, but it wasn't her master who wanted to give her the freedom, and then you know with William Still, as well as uh, Williamson, uh, getting involved with this case and, and going through all that they had to endure in order for her to get her freedom. Yeah, quite impressive on their part uh, to involve themselves. But that's what they did. They were abolitionists. And, yes. They uh, were abolitionists, uh, willing to risk their own freedom uh, for the cause of freedom. Uh, yes, sir. <clears throat> Very impressive, because if I'm not mistaken, Williamson actually spent some time in jail due to a uh, contempt of court. Uh, exactly. Yeah, and because he was he he truthfully didn't know who William still had were hiding uh, the Johnsons, the Johnson uh, family, and uh, so he did some time in jail back in the 1800s. You know, because his belief in that every human being should be free. And he, being a Caucasian, because Williamson was white, he was a white kind of abolitionist, um, him willing to put himself on the line that way. Yeah, and his uh, color really didn't save him from those charges, and charges being piled on. Um, yeah. Inciting to riot, <laughs> well, one of his charges <laughs> piled in on him. Uh, yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Can you imagine in, in 1855 a white male standing up for slaves? How you know because it was the norm in, in in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, it was okay. But you know you come down a couple of states, and how he would have been ostracized if not lynched. Oh yeah, oh yeah, most definitely, most definitely. We have to give some credit to those free blacks that were involved in this case as well who were given her notes, her notes. Yeah, absolutely. William Steele. Um, and that's often overlooked, uh, the role that blacks, the northern blacks, eastern blacks, played in that in the freedom movement, the abolitionist movement. Uh, they, too, were very well dedicated. And uh, fortunate for them, as we've already noted, that they had allies amongst the white population, uh, but it should not be overlooked that blacks were just much involved, if not more involved, in the uh, abolitionist movement and the and the rights uh, for people to be free. I would 100% agree with you. I, I think that uh, even though Caucasians or whites were abolitionists, that's, that was probably not the norm. Um, because again, there's that, that you know they they would be. Uh, speaking out and acting out for an interest that really wasn't their interest because they were free. So the majority of those people who on a daily basis were seeing those, you know, who were still probably some of their family members that were down south. And so they were working on a daily basis trying to help others, hoping that probably that some of their family members could make it to freedom in Pennsylvania. 
Yeah. Well, you know, the Vigilance Committee, of which uh, Steele and others were members of, um, it's probably part of what they did in their daily activities was to be on the staff for slave mm-hmm. owners and crew. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they're very vigilant on that. Uh, of course, the, the name, the Vigilance Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very determined to be on the lookout. And as you say, um, some who were probably escaped slaves themselves, uh, who had relatives still in bondage in the South, um, hoping to maybe see them come through one day uh, so that they might apply the Pennsylvania law uh, to their own. And, and, and I guess it's, it's interesting that if it's the law, <clears throat> that, you know, that whole court case situation, um, because if it's the law, it's already in place. Then why the court case? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there have been a number of court cases, I'm sure. They're in Philadelphia, Another uh, other heroic uh, rescues uh, in Philadelphia. Um, some that were pretty violent where uh, blacks were forcibly removed from the court uh, and taken off to freedom. Uh, through the Underground Railroad all the way up into Canada. Uh, so, and um, now he had allies, that is Wheeler, um, among slave voters. Do you think some of those were um, the white businessmen there? They were probably more uh, involved with the abolitionist movement. Uh, his allies were probably... Uh, southern planters and plantation owners. Uh, I know they talked about that. Did you get any feel for what they were talking about on that score? Hello? Seem to have lost contact. Dr. Jackson? Are you there? Hello, can you hear me? I'm here. Hello, hello. Yeah, we got you now. Okay, uh, all right. Uh, yeah, I, I said that's an that's an interest, interesting question that you asked about uh, the business people who may have been uh, Northerners versus um, who Wheelers uh, allies may be Southerners. You know, that's interesting simply because I'm sure you know the history of Wall Street and how Wall Street was built based on slavery and how uh, the Lehman Brothers from Alabama, who were cotton uh, growers, moved to New York and uh, basically built Wall Street based on slavery. So to answer your question, I'm going to say even with the business people in the North, I would say that you probably still had those who were of the mindset of slavery because you're talking about business and profit, which means cheap or free labor, which was the issue in the South with slavery. You know, free labor, that enabled uh, uh, the South to benefit from a uh, a wealth perspective versus the North. And the North, at least a lot of the North, didn't have access to that, and, and that was that, that, whole, that whole economic issue uh, with slavery. So I'm willing to think that even though there were those who may have been in the North who were business people and they, they, some of them may have been abolitionists, you probably had some closet um, business people there with 
business people there who were closet uh, closet people still proponents of slavery, and and just to have access to that uh, that resource of free labor. Or maybe he wanted to uh, institute some slave laws in their own area. Um, you know, being in the north there in Philadelphia, uh, blacks were free uh, to have their beauty shops. They were cooks. They were waiters, landscapers, um, to go into business for themselves. And uh, I'm sure that those northern businessmen, well, first of all, envied their southern brethren for the free labor that they were getting, wish they could have it, but have it with some control, uh, something very akin to slavery, uh, perhaps. Yeah, I would agree with you. I would agree with your assessment uh, of that. And you used the key word, and that is envy. You know, anytime you're talking about, you know, revenue and profits, um, you know, one is always envious because of the, the ability to be able to create wealth uh, from having that free, uh, you know, and uh, or that free labor or that, that cheap labor. And, you know, you can translate that to today with the outsourcing of jobs going to other countries, you know, because the country was built on that. Yeah, the country was built on free and, and cheap labor. So as a result, you know, the labor here gets a little bit high, uh, because people are more educated than you have unions that come into play that have negotiated contracts, and all of a sudden it doesn't make sense when I can ship it to China or to the Philippines or, you know, somewhere else and pay them $0.60 cent an hour. Or, better yet, we can take a look at the prison industrial complex where, uh, you know, <laughs> the prison industrial complex where I can pay them $0.30 cent a day and uh, work them forever because they're property of the state or property of the federal government, and then you got the private prisons coming into play. And, you know, so um, that still exists in this country today. Very much so. The more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, Absolutely. and I made a note here um, in listening to uh, the reading, uh, the tension was so high that they brought Jane into court in a bail, uh, I guess hoping that she wouldn't be recognized and thinking that if she was recognized right away, uh, it might have precipitated a riot uh, in the courthouse or nearby. So I thought that was interesting. You know, that that was very interesting, and I'll tell you one of the reasons is probably the, the fact that of who, who her slave master was, Wheeler, being a U.S. diplomat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so with him having, quote, unquote, the clout of a politician representing the government in, in a different country, uh, he was probably able to call on some of his political friends from the South uh, who were probably able to touch people in the North to probably, you know, create a riot in order to, um, I guess, kidnap Jane and her her sons, and so they they had to do it in, in a clandestine way, and that is to bring her into court in a veil so that she would not be recognized because we never know what would have happened had she been recognized and what Wheeler uh, could have possibly planned. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was cases like this, this case and other cases, uh, which I think gained a lot of, of uh, allies over to the abolitionist movement, uh, 
um, by the fact that, you know, white folks were going to jail over the freedom of blacks. And a lot of people who maybe been sitting on the fence uh, when it came to the abolitionist movement, it probably drew them in. So I'm thinking that was a very uh, a very high-profile case uh, for the abolitionist uh, movement there, for the Vigilance Committee. I'm sure their ranks probably swelled uh, during that period. Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, I just had an interesting thought, and that thought is, what if some of the liberals that call themselves liberals today who are supposedly allies of African-Americans, what if they had that same passion that the white abolitionists had in trying to free uh, slaves? If we had that, if they had that same passion today, where would we be as a country? They were willing to sacrifice themselves for what they believed because most white liberals today, they go just as far as they need to go to understand the impact of what they're supporting and how it impacts white people. And then they walk away from the movement. But this guy was willing to put himself on the line and go to jail. What if those liberals today had that same passion? Where would we be as a country? Well, more unified than what we are now, uh, I'm sure. I'd like to remind our listeners uh, that they're listening to The Gist of Freedom. Our producer is Leslie Gist. And if you'd like to have a question answered or a comment, you can join this conversation at 347-342-5552. And my guest is Dr. Terry Jackson. My name is Preston Washington, your host. And we have a few minutes left here, and we're going to continue. Um Going over my notes here. See what else uh, came to mind or struck me as uh, fairly outstanding. Oh yeah, you mentioned the the habeas corpus. I made a note on that as well. Uh, and uh, Mr. Uh, Williamson was out of town. He was unaware that that writ. Of habeas corpus have been issued, uh, and you mentioned that. Is that? Uh... Yeah, that was under that. Uh, I think uh, you know, of course, in in, in 1850, there was a Fugitive Slave Act, and exactly. um, yeah, and and what happened was because Wheeler, the slave owner, was a prominent Democrat, you know, he kind of appealed to the to the pro pro slavery federal. Uh, court judge, whose name was John Cain. John C- John Cain uh, was the one who actually uh, had that writ, that writ of habeas corpus served on Williamson, uh, and then Williamson was you know ordered to produce the three slaves, and he he couldn't produce them, and so it, it, he was truthful. He didn't know where William Still had actually uh, hit, hidden the slaves. And so because of that, he went to prison for contempt of court. And it made national headlines uh, based on his going to to jail for that. And a number of prominent editors and anti-slavery people and crusaders from the north actually came to his defense. You know, you can talk about Horace Greeley, uh, William Lloyd Garrison, as well as Frederick Douglass. 
Yeah, I'm saying that, uh, and probably uh, a number of lesser-known uh, individuals got involved with uh, the movement that particular time. As you noted, it's a very hope, uh, very high-profile case, and that writ uh, really drew a lot of attention uh, nationwide to the case. What other charges did they pile on besides the uh, inciting a riot? It seemed like there was a two or three more. Do you recall what they were? I do not recall, and I didn't jot those down uh, in my in my notes of what they uh, all of the all of the charges that they filed they filed against him. And I think for our viewers, could you uh, give a little bit more detail about the uh, Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 for those of viewers who may not, or listeners who may not be that familiar with it? Yeah, the Fugitive Slave Act of, uh, says basically anyone who is assisting the escape uh, of slaves face prosecution. That's pretty much. If you or anyone, uh, you know, your family members, you you know what you wanted slavery whether you were black or white it really didn't matter if you were caught assisting a slave in 1850 then you were subject to prosecution by the federal government. Okay. And uh, if our listeners wanted to make contact with you, how would they do that? Well, if they wanted to make contact with me, they could reach me one of a couple of ways. Um, you could reach me uh, via phone. As I said, uh, even though I'm deeply passionate about history, for me it's about the connection of history to business because all business is basically history. And um, so they could reach me. Uh, go to my website, www.tjackphd, that's T J A C K. PaulHarryDavid.com, or they could actually visit my consulting site, which is www.wepiphany.co. That's W-E-P-I-P-H-A-N-Y.co, not .com. Wepiphany, like epiphany. To have an epiphany and just add the W before. And again, and again, you know what I do is. I help organizations and individuals achieve peak performance and sustain that peak performance. I also have a system which I call the personal mastery system, which helps one create a personal strategic plan in order to transform, inspire, motivate, and empower them in life to give people uh, direction in life. I also do a great deal of corporate speaking for corporations, and I do a great deal of what I call empowerment speaking versus motivational speaking because so, I'm going to leave you with some tools that you can use on a day-to-day basis in your life to make your life better. All right, then. So do you have any events or presentations coming up here in the near future? Actually, I'm presenting to a group. Of, I'm presenting to a group of executives in Raleigh, North Carolina, on Tuesday morning at eight o'clock at the Capital City Club. And for those who are not familiar with the Capital City Club, it's one of those clubs where all the executives go. They do breakfast, they do lunch, and they do dinner. And so, for the Business Alliance Group, I'm doing a, um, I'm doing an article that I wrote called "The Eight Core Competencies That a Leader Needs to Sustain Performance." 
So I'm going to walk through those eight core competencies, which ties into my CD, my fourth disc CD set called Personal Mastery. It's your time. And those eight core competencies that a leader need is first, they need to be able to communicate well. They need to be able to lead well. They need to be able to adapt to develop others, to build relationships, to manage their tasks, to be productive, and most importantly, they need to have personal mastery. Personal mastery basically is self-awareness and the ability to lead self first before you can lead anyone else. And all great leaders must understand that leadership is a privilege and it's something that is given to them, not something that they just take. All right on. I'm on my way to your website right now. <laughs> well, I, pre- I appreciate that. Yeah, um, we've just about run out of time here. I very uh, much appreciate your joining us here on The Gift of Freedom, where we've continued our reading of William Spill's book, The Underground Railroad. My guest has been uh, Dr. Terry Jackson, bringing history and business together. Any closing remarks, any last thoughts about the reading that we just heard? Well, you know, for, for me, um, it was uh, new knowledge, you know, being asked to if I would like to participate in this. And I'm always open to, to new ideas uh, and to learn more, even though, quote, unquote, I have the Ph.D. It's about learning. It's about service. It's about helping others. Um, and we can see that in, you know, in, in Chapters 20 and 21, that's exactly what happened in, in Pennsylvania. There was a network, uh, the Underground Railroad. This particular uh, slave, Jane Johnson, wanted freedom for herself and her her family. Uh, she wanted to, and she was willing to do whatever it took to do so. Um, and she was able to be convincing enough of her slave master to take her on the trip. That's that savviness that I speak of. And then to endure uh, whatever it took to go through the court case in order to, to win her freedom. And then, again, you know, you look at uh, William Still and you look at Williamson and, and all that they did and all that the other uh, blacks in Philadelphia contributed to that whole Underground Railroad movement, the freedom of uh, helping, you know, each other become free. And, you know, when we look at that concept, that's something that we need to be able to apply uh, on a daily basis. Life is about helping others. I think Zig Ziglar said, you can get anything you want in life. All you got to do is help others get, get what they're looking for. Exactly. Dr. Jackson, I very much appreciate your being here tonight with us. Uh, perhaps we can get together in the future on this same subject, this same reading, or some other topic. Um, I would be more than, more than happy to do that. Great. And we're out of time here. And uh, I want to remind our listeners that they've been listening to the Gist of Freedom. Our executive producer is Leslie Gist. You can reach her at leslie at thegistoffreedom.com. I've been your host. My name is Preston Washington. And uh, you can also reach me at preston at thegistoffreedom.com. Good night, Dr. Jackson. And good night, America. Thank you.